Good evening and welcome. I'm John Drummond and I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. A very warm welcome to the TNT show. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest uh, and I'm really excited that he's able to join us. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Alan Bissett, one of our leading playwrights. How are you, Alan? How are you coping with the pandemic? Uh, well, I mean, it's a weird time for me, for everybody, for the nation, for the globe. I would say I've been coping reasonably well. It was difficult over the summer, obviously, because uh, the kids were at home. I've got two very young children, uh, four and two, so they need a lot of attention. There was no childcare, so I couldn't get anything done, couldn't get any writing done, couldn't make headway with anything. For the first time in my life, work-wise, I was completely inactive, but I think that was the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, now they're back in childcare, I'm able to get on with my work. But I've now got a backlog of things that need done, you know, <laughs> writing projects that never get done over the summer. I'm frantically typing, trying to try to get these things done. And I've got a lot to say, obviously, because uh, there's a lot going on, as we'll discuss. So uh, overall, I would I would say I'm well, but, you know, all things considered, I would say. Tell me, Alan, how does a writer, how does a playwright in particular get paid during a pandemic? The theatres are closed, there's no productions. Oh. How, how, do you get, how does it work? That is the big issue facing all of us who work in theatre. Theatres are shut, venues are shut. You know, I can't, usually I would be taking my work on tour, uh, a tour of one woman show called The Moira Monologues, that I could pretty much fit in a suitcase and take on a bus or a train, go anywhere in Scotland, rock yeah. up and do it. That's obviously not the case anymore. So there's a lot of very, very worried conversations between everybody in the theatre industry and the performing arts in general about you know, is, is this it? Is this the end? Because even when theatres open again, the one, if they open again, because a lot of them might shut down because they've got no box office revenue, is there going to be anybody left to put on work? Because all the actors and all the writers and all the directors and all the stagehands and all the designers have all had to retrain, uh, you know, on the instructions of the Chancellor. We've yeah. been told that uh, <laughs> no more help is coming and we all need to retrain. So who knows what the, the future of that industry is going to look like. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to kid on that I'm not very, very worried about my financial future or my financial present even for that matter. I'm well aware that a lot of people have got things a lot worse than me. So I, I didn't feel like complaining too much about that. But things are very, very uncertain, that's for sure. I mean, it must be very difficult. We were talking to Eddie Reader uh, recently on the show and she mentioned the fact yeah. that for the principals that wee bit easier perhaps, but all the folks who are on the ancillary side of the business, you know, the people who supply the, you know, the, the, the roadies and the, the, the folks who, who, who are around the, the, the main players, as it were, uh, it's very difficult for them, you know, frankly. Well, it's, it's difficult for everybody. If you're a musician or a dancer or a comedian or a singer or a performer or an actor, anything that involves an audience, a DJ, it could be game over. I mean, it really could be. I'm having to now be very, very creative about what I can do that could yeah. possibly bring in income. And I've yeah. got a few ideas, but you know, none of them are surefire hits. You never, you never know what's going to land and what isn't it. I mean, I can still write. Nothing can stop me writing. 
And while I can still write, there's still at least potential for, for me to do something. So I've got a novella coming out around about Christmas time, you know, a short novel, which is my first piece of uh, extended prose in about 10 years. I've not published a novel in 10 years. So uh, hopefully that's that's a future for me that I can go back to writing novels and I've missed writing novels. Yeah. So we'll see how that does. There is a scoop. What's it going to be called? It's called Lazy Susan. Lazy Susan. It's basically a novella. Do you remember those books that we used to get when when we were younger, where you, you get to choose your own adventure? So if if you want to go to page thirty to fight the the big dragon, you do that, or you can go to page fifty six to run away, and you you have all different narrative paths that you can go down yeah. like that, but for grown ups. <laughs> and kid nobody's ever done that before, and I thought, hey, so that's a. That's a narrative form that's never been explored. Kids are used to that form, or certainly yeah. my generation was, but I've never seen it for an adult book. So I'm going to do that and, and have some have some fun with it. I'm also yeah. doing uh, online house parties because I love dancing and I really miss dancing. I really miss going out clubbing. So I'm doing uh, Alan Bissett's House Party, where I DJ the whole night, basically put on some upbeat, positive music that hopefully everybody knows. And you get the disco lights on, your living room get dressed up a wee bit. And we all just dance. So that, right. that's been a lot of fun. I've been yeah. really enjoying that. Yeah. Well, so how do people get to your house party? Do they well, go to, your, you have a they look go to your, my, your website? Yeah, my website or my Facebook page. I usually let people know when they're coming up. There will be one in November. I will have not picked a date for it, but November is my birthday month. So you've all got to come. <laughs> so uh, I keep an eye on my website or my Facebook page. You'll, you'll, you'll get it there. It's great. You'll love it. Yeah, well, looking forward to it. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are just now, Alan. You, you, you were born in Falkirk, is that right? I was, yeah. Um, born in Falkirk, uh, went to university at Stirling, and while I was at university, I wrote my first novel, which was called Boy Racers, which was about a lot of my teenage experiences growing up in Falkirk. Uh, that took off, allowed me to write further novels, so I published four novels. Uh, then I started writing plays. So I've been doing plays pretty much for the last 10 years or so. Uh, and you can write plays faster and, and you, you get a much more immediate return because the audience are there in front of you and there's a live thing happening. Novels take a long, long time to write. Uh, so I got kind of addicted to the film of writing plays. Uh, and then the referendum happened. <laughs> uh, so between 2012 and 2014, I pretty much devoted myself to trying to secure independence for Scotland. Uh, that didn't happen, but, you know, as the song goes, it's not over, not over, not over yet. <laughs> like, uh-huh. There you are. Hey. There we are. Huh? <laughs> you know, it's all happening. It's all happening. Yeah. Fucking, yeah. oof. Yeah. <laughs> what is it now? Yes, it's 58%. That's 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 the figure I was quoting earlier, but it it, it is amazing. I, I have a, I saw somebody from uh, I'm going interviewing him soon, a guy called Andy McIver who was in part of the No campaign, and, and he makes the point that, that um, this is mainly uh, push, not pull, and I guess what he means by that is that people have been pushed towards independence mm-hmm. by. By the ineptitude, I assume that he, the, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth now, for which I apologise. Uh, but I'm assuming through incompetence and ineptitude at Westminster, a lot of people perhaps have been pushed 
towards independence rather than pull to independence by the compelling logic of it. Well, whether they've been pushed or whether they've been pulled, we'll take them anyway. <laughs> you know, but it, they all count. <laughs> it does. It does go to show that the not only is the no vote collapsing, but the argument is collapsing as well, and people are sensing that. Yeah. So something that was saying in one of the latest polls, um, something like sixty-three percent of Scots now believe that yes, we'll win the next referendum. Now, obviously, sixty-three percent doesn't translate directly into support for yes, right. but it does show the collapse in morale. Uh, and the no side, that a lot of them are starting to feel like the game is up. It doesn't yeah. mean they'll vote for independence, but they're starting to feel that the union might be a lost cause. So yeah. these are huge, huge psychological gifts for us and huge psychological wins for the opposition. Because if you're starting to feel like you're, yeah, you're pushing against an open door, you keep pushing. And if you're starting to feel you're pushing against a locked door, you stop pushing. Yeah. And, you know, like they, they might start to feel the game is up and, and give up the ghost. There's a lot of them that will, eh? obviously. But if I was a unionist right now, I'd be very, very worried. Very worried. Well, the, the, the two things that happened that I think are significant, uh, perhaps. One is that if you deconstruct the poll figures, you see that of those uh, over 65, the yes support is running at 40%. Now, frankly, that's extraordinary. It's yeah. truly extraordinary because yeah. that was the most resistant part of the whole electorate. I remember. <laughs> they, I know. They, they consume uh, broadcast media almost exclusively. Uh, and therefore, they're not exposed to information on social media to, to anywhere near the same degree. Since broadcast media, and I'm saying that in a very general way, is almost exclusively unionist, one or two notable exceptions, then it's not too surprising that based on the information they receive, they came to that, the conclusions that they did. But it seems to be the case that despite that quality of information, people are moving significantly. Because my recollection around about 2014 is that the over 65s were predominantly terrified. I mean, and also when it comes to the media as well, you might start to feel that if the media sends that this thing is inevitable and that they are now representing a minority position, I'm just going to pour myself a glass of wine while I actually go through this. Because I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying this conversation. They might actually start to reassess their own position because they'll no want to look as though they're twisting in the wind. They'll no want to feel as though they're representing some minority fringe position. The, the media often like to piggyback on whatever they feel the prevailing mood of the country is. Yeah. Because uh, they need to sell papers and uh, they need to get viewers. So you might start to find that they will just become that that bit more amenable to our arguments in a way that they never were going to be in 2014. I think some might. I think the, the, the groups that depend on uh, sales, obviously, uh, might well take the view. That, as I, I forecast that in my column in the Sunday National at the weekend, uh, that two things would happen, perhaps. One is that newspaper editors uh, and perhaps their owners, more particularly, might take the view that we better jump rather than be pushed. Because yeah. if you jump, you're on the winning side. If you get pushed, you're a loser. And yeah. that would also apply to the conservative and unionist, because we well, may well see a split developing between those who are conservative, i.e. right-wing, and those who are unionist, who don't care less, who care less whether it's right or left. They just want the union. 
Now, that will place an intolerable strain when the polls continue to move in this direction, because then you'll have conservatives saying, I don't mind being a big fish in a smaller pond. That's not a problem for me. Whereas unions take the view that, well, it, 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 it's almost a, a, a sort of religious uh, perspective, which is to say, I'm, I'm opposed to it in any way, shape or form. You know, there's the, the diehards still exist and, and will probably never go away. There's probably at least a good maybe 40% of Scots who will never vote for independence under any circumstances. But that still leaves the, the rest of the 60% open to us. Um, and you notice that with devolution, like, you know, the argument in the 70s against devolution was, was quite fierce. But by the time you got to uh, the late 90s, I think a lot of Scots had just sort of given themselves up to the idea the media had. Even the Conservatives had. They'd opposed it, but yeah. they got on board with it because they realised which way the wind was blowing. So there's still, it's, you know, it's, no, it's not a done deal by any means, but at the same time, we'd be starting off another campaign from an incredible platform yeah. that we couldn't even have dreamed about in 2014. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely a lot to make us feel very positive. There's there's also another side there, which we might get on there, which are the difficulties that we're yeah. facing just now, and they are real and significant. Well, let's, let's move on to some of the questions. We've had it so okay. We're 15 sure. minutes in, I haven't taken any questions, having told the whole world that we welcome questions. So let's get on with it, yeah. Stephen Kelly on Facebook is saying, what do you think Nicola will do if Westminster threatens to close down Holyrood? Well, I mean, now we're getting into it because now we get to the question of Westminster's intransigence because they realise that they will lose another referendum. So the only tactic they've got now is to say, Scotland voted no, you're part of the union. You know, you said it was once in a generation and we know how, how disingenuous an argument that is, but nonetheless, yeah. that's, that's the argument they put forward. You're not getting another referendum, basically. That, that's all they've got left. Now, that is also part of the point that we are making, that we now have to ask permission to basically make our own decisions in any sense. Yeah. You know, it's the, the devolution in a lot of ways is an illusion that actually we were always within Westminster's control and still are. And the whole point about the no vote was that it gives them a license to do whatever the hell they like to us, as, as they're doing doing just now with the roll back in devolution. Yeah. So it would be very, very difficult to know what we would do if they actually threatened to shut down Holyrood. I don't think they will threaten to shut down Holyrood. I think what they'll do is basically just try and hollow it for the inside over the course of many, many years, strip powers away, downgrade it. We can all see what they're doing by pumping millions into the Scotland office to make it a rival power base to yeah. Holyrood in Scotland funding projects directly. This is this is a plan basically to sort of sideline and marginalise Hollywood. I don't think they would ever shut Hollywood down unless in a very, very extreme case um, where they, they felt all hope was lost. I might get to that, who knows? What do you think Nicola Sturgeon would do? Well, I mean, we can't presume that Nicola Sturgeon will be the First Minister uh, at, at that stage, but let's say that she is. Um, I would like to think that we would declare independence at that stage because all democratic means to achieve an independence will be removed. Now, I'm not a fan of UDI just as a matter of course because, you know, it is the last resort. But if all democratic means have been removed, 
and that the majority of Scots are on our side, yeah. then it's, it would be the only available route. Who knows? They might try and go this into that because if they go this into that, then they'll they'll feel like um, they they're facing a situation that requires extreme measures. But I, I would like to think we'll not get to that stage. Okay, let's just examine the, the, the earlier point you made there, because some somebody has written to us saying, even though you don't have the title officially, you ought to be known as the Great Seer of Scotland, because so many, oh, so many of, <laughs> of, of, of your, so much of your thinking has been proved to be accurate in the final analysis. Uh, so they, they reckon that you're very much worthy of the title. So. Assuming that mantle for a second, however uncomfortable it feels, let's assume that we've got a situation where uh, the government does exactly as you forecast. It, it will emasculate public it won't close it down. It will emasculate it. It will use the internal market legislation uh, to put union jacks all over, all over Scotland. It will uh, open bridges that are perhaps not entirely necessary, extra railway lines, all the rest of that good stuff. As a means of demonstrating to Scots, hey, you don't need Hollywood. You can have all these goodies. All you have to do is stick with the union. Do you think that will be effective? No. Um, I think all that will do will shore up their base. But I don't think anybody who's gone over to yes now is really for moving because I think they can see clear as day what things look like. And I always felt that during the independence referendum that it would take a no vote in order for a lot of Scots to realise the consequences of voting no. They would have to see what happens when they vote no in order to realise what a mistake it was. Yeah. Now, I can just about understand a lot of Scots feeling that at that time there were you know, too many unanswered questions, blah, blah, blah. It was that, that was an easy pitch for the no campaign to people because the very nature of the future, the very nature of any political decision is yeah. uncertainty. That's... Yeah. That's why it's the future, because we can't see what it looks like. So that was an easy sell to people. But what is an easy pitch for us now and in any future referendum is to say, well, look, here's what was promised if we voted no. Here's what happened. You know, you can show them the timeline clear as day and yeah. people can see what the consequences of what are, that Westminster will take it as capitulation, as submission as weakness. They were never going to take it as a, a show of friendship or unity yeah. or, or faith in, in the government. They were going to take it as weakness. And so that's they've exploited that. They were always going to exploit that. And they'll exploit any future capitulation. So yeah. we're in a last stand situation because if they manage to defeat the independence movement through whatever means, then that's it. The, the door will shut and they'll never allow us to leave. I mean, we might already be in that situation, to be quite honest with you. Ooh. Uh, now, I feel there were, there were certain missed opportunities uh, a few years ago where we should have been taking it to court. As soon as the Brexit result was in, we should have been going to court to find out the exact legal situation vis-a-vis yeah. -vis a Section 30 and to find out, whether, find out whether or not it was within our purview to hold a legal referendum. And we would know the answer to that now and be able to strategise from there. I also think it was a mistake for the Scottish government, when Theresa May needed support to push through her withdrawal bill, we should have given her that support because it was never within our rights to deny England its vote. England voted for Brexit. We have to respect that. All right, we're trapped. 
with them and you know we're chained to them as, as they plummet but we, what we should have said was Scotland voted to stay in Europe England and Wales have voted to leave we will help the Prime Minister of the UK push through her withdrawal bill in return for a Section 30 order yeah. and that's what should have happened and I, I feel now that we're, we're strategic mistakes have been made and it's, it's where we go for here yeah. so um uh, it is going to be a struggle. We've got, but what we've got is the majority of the people on our side. That is a massive, massive boost. Yeah. What we've no got is the legal recourse to a referendum, and that is a massive, massive obstacle. So it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Yeah. That's where we are, John. Yeah. Let me move you on to something else, if I might. We've had some questions. Uh, uh, some questions from Ellen Hoffer. Ellen, I hope I've pronounced your surname properly. I do apologise if I haven't. She's asking two questions, really. What does Alan think of the clear lack of progress on independence, given the no-deal <coughs> Brexit, <coughs> with the Scottish government repeatedly promised it wouldn't allow Scotland to be dragged out of the EU, and it looks like as if that's going to happen before the end of the year? Well, I mean, I think, to be honest, I've just answered that question in terms of what, what um, Sturgeon promised would happen and what has actually happened, there is a, a, a huge disparity there. And I know she's in a very difficult position because Alex Salmond never had to deal with Brexit. Alex Salmond never had to deal with the coronavirus. Alex Salmond actually, in, in a lot of ways, had the perfect conditions because he had an agreement for the UK government and uh, it was simply a matter of making the case to the people of Scotland. Alex Salmond never managed to get support for independence above you know, 46, 47%. Well, actually, to be fair, I think it probably did reach over 50% uh, you know, in, the, in the days really? close to the to the referendum. I think we probably were ahead. And then they threw, you know, <clears throat> fire and lightning bolts for the sky and promised yeah. that the world would cave in. And that was enough to make people scurry back over the line. Yeah. Um, however, I also think Sturgeon has made uh, strategic mistakes that, you know, uh, you could see, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here as an armchair football manager and I could see that that was, I, you know, I've not got her political experience, but I could see that, you know, stop Brexit was absolutely the wrong strategy for the Scottish government to be taken. What they should have been doing at that point was pursuing independence. It was stopping Brexit. That was, we wasted two years pursuing that strategy. It was, you know, why, why should we be stopping Brexit when it had been voted for democratically by the people of England? That's uh, no fair, actually. Um, so I've answered, I think I've answered that question, but to come back to what somebody was asking earlier about what I think is, is, is coming for us doing the line, I don't think there's any Conservative government that's ever going to grant us a Section 30 order. I think that's a lost cause. I think we need to get it to court as soon as possible, get an answer for the Supreme Court before Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummins can rip uh, the structure apart and basically stuff the Supreme Court with Brexit and Tory-friendly judges. So we need to do that as, as a matter of priority. Uh, I think we need to be you know building support. Uh, you know that's underway at present with Martin Keating. Yes, part. but the Scottish yeah. government are not supporting them. That's true. Why are the Scottish government not supporting them? And also, Sturgeon has come out and said that the only way, the only legal way that Scotland should be even allowed to uh, achieve its independence is through a Section 30 order. Now, I understand that's the ideal way. But when she starts saying things like all other ways would be illegitimate, she's tying her hands. What she's just done there is the equivalent 
And what Salmon did back in the referendum where he used the phrase once in a generation, I understand that it's just a, a phrase that people use mm. to describe an important opportunity. But sure. nonetheless, that was a strategic error using that phrase. And Sturgeon saying that other routes to achieve independence than a Section 30 order would be illegitimate. They're going to quote that back as when we try and pursue these routes. Well, Sturgeon said that's illegitimate. So, you know, I, 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 I think Sturgeon has, has got a great many strengths. A great many strengths. Communication is one of them. But I don't, I don't think in terms of uh, finding a path towards independence or a referendum, she's, she's um, shown that she... Uh, do you know what? I'm, I'm trying not to be too hard on anybody in the independence movement. One of the things that frustrates me a wee bit has happened over the last few years is that everybody in the, in the independence movement is now expending so much energy fighting everybody else in the independence movement. It's a fucking joke. Yeah. You know what I mean? All, there's so much anger at every other faction, all these factions that are out to destroy each other. Yeah. Now, maybe we had it sweet during the first referendum because none of these factions had ever worked with, with each other before. Some of them were completely new, completely new to politics. Nobody knew anybody. We had a deadline. We had a clear goal. So that provided a glue that bonded everybody together. And for the last few years, it's been nothing. Everybody thinks that they own the movement and that all these other people are imposters. Everybody. And I'm sick of it. So I'm trying, I'm trying not to go down that road. I, I think it's fair to talk about mistakes that have been made. Um, but I'm trying not to be I'm trying not to be too hard on Sturgeon because she's got a very, very difficult job, a very, very difficult time, and she's facing challenges that uh, our predecessors never faced. Yeah. Is that all right to, to summarise it that way? Yeah, but absolutely. To come back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think any Conservative government is going to grant us a Section 30 order. I think our only hope with that route is a Labour government. Yeah. I think it's possible that a Labour government might, and I stress the word might, but I think we should be looking at other means for securing independence other than a yeah. Section 30, because I, I think ultimately it's going to be a dead end. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, that, was a, that was a big monologue there. I do apologise. No, it was, no it, was, it was very helpful. I mean, it, 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 it's because, I mean, essentially what you're doing is you're expressing the views of lots and lots of people here. I'm just And, and, that, and that's, what, that's what writers do. They, they, you know, they, they, that's the gift that you have that other people might not have. I mean, there is a great irony here. One is that uh, it, it was a Conservative government that, that supplied the first Section 30. And, and the, the logic seems to be the only reason they agreed is because they knew in advance they would win. But my word, at the end of the day, as you said earlier, it was a close-run thing. Yes. And if it hadn't been for a vow that was thrown in at the very last minute, I suspect we would now be, it would be extremely marginal. The thought I had listening to you is, what you were saying was very reminiscent if, if you look at the history of independence movements across the centuries and across the world. I mean, and the one that particularly came to mind as you spoke was the United States. Because here you had a bunch of people who, uh, for various reasons, some very diverse reasons, wanted uh, to sever the connection with the Crown. 30% felt that that was just heinous. It was beyond the pale. It couldn't be countenanced. Uh, there were a whole bunch of reasons why it couldn't be countenanced. There was a 30% of those who became known as patriots who decided, yes, they wanted a different system. But they didn't agree amongst themselves. I mean, Alistair Hamilton, Alistair Hamilton didn't agree with Jefferson. They didn't agree with Madison. Madison didn't agree with Washington. Washington didn't agree with anybody. 
uh, particularly when his teeth were hurting him. You know, there was all this going on the whole time. Plus, in addition, they were fighting a war, but they were still fighting amongst themselves. Uh, in fact, so bad was the fighting that Alexander Hamilton eventually lost his life in a duel because he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't agree with folks. So it's not unusual for independence movements to, to have all sorts of different elements. But I thought your point was really valid, which is that when you have a, a specific deadline as well as a goal, then you can get people to coalesce, it seems to me, around uh, with a, a clearer focus. Until you get that point, people have huge energy and therefore it gets dispelled in all sorts of different ways with all sorts of different people and all sorts of different groups. It's, I think it's more about human nature than it is about Scottish independence, uh, perhaps. Uh, the nature of politics. And the nature of politics, yeah. You know, it's all about choices. In any political movement, you only have to look at the history of feminism or the history of the civil rights movement in America or the history of independence movements or you know, gay liberation, whatever. There's always ideological differences and factions, and they all end up turning each other. Yeah. And I find it, um, you know, frustrating that that is inevitable. Yeah. And I, I didn't want that for this particular movement, but we are where we are. I would like to think that should there be another referendum, everybody would be able to work together again. Because if you look at what happened with the No campaign, the massive ideological differences between the Tories and the Lib Dems and, and Labour, well, sometimes not that massive, but, you know, they exist. Yeah. They were able to at least unite uh, against a con common enemy, us, and yeah. get the job done. So I would like to think that we would be able to do the same. But there's now so much bad blood and so many things have been said and, and so many individuals are now no trusted by that faction and that faction. Yeah. It's just frustrating. I, th I think I'm just expressing a frustration with it. And I, and I always vowed to myself that I would never get involved in any of that. And so if, if I've got criticisms of Sturgeon to make, Jahav, I, I also think she has done some things extremely well. She's got support for independence to 58%. So I'll give her that. Yep. You know, that, that is an incredible achievement. Uh, and she also is steering the ship at a time that nobody could have foreseen the difficulty of. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, these are very, very difficult times indeed. Uh, talking about joining together and being united, we have a question here from Anne Miller who says, you know, the National Collective, mm. she says, was, was just a great platform for people from the arts uh, during Indie Ref. It really helped to promote and cement our cause. How easy do you think it would be to regenerate the National uh, Collective uh, for the next Indie Ref? There you are, you see. <laughs> yes, the and, would it, and would it take the same format and who would lead it, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I, I love National Collective. I was very pleased to be involved in it. I mean, I was never involved in an organisational capacity. I sort of uh, lent them my name and my support and, and sometimes get involved in their initiatives. But it was actually a group of young people um, who never get the credit, a, a whole bunch of people who um, did loads of work behind the scenes and it was the celebrity names that got all the attention. But they did amazing things. I mean, that there is a T-shirt from Yestable. Now, Yestable toured like 50, 50 different towns and cities in Scotland, yeah. right? And something like 50 days. A stunning achievement. And basically saying to people in very, very small places as well as the big cities, look, we can have uh, an opportunity here to recreate the world. This is a creative act. Scottish independence is a creative act, and that's why so many artists are in favour of it. 
and they, they made some wonderful things. So there's this as well, this book that everybody's forgotten about. It's called Inspired by Independence. Beautifully designed yeah. book, as yeah. an artifact. And if you look at some of the names that are in it, right? I'm going to even just like randomly open the, the page. At, at, look, at the, look at these beautiful pictures. Yeah. Uh, and you've got people like James Kelman in there. You've got, you've got folk like uh, Loki. You've got all sorts of people um, who are basically setting out their stall uh, Angus McNichol, you've got just, I mean, see, th this one day, oh, look at that, look at that handsome bastard. <laughs> feet up in his West End flat. <laughs> yeah. Just for a minute there, I thought that was Martin Comston. <laughs> well, what it is, is a younger and thinner me, that's what it is. Uh, they did great stuff. Um, and the reason that you could see that they were doing great stuff is because the opposition were trying to make a point of taking them down. Yeah. And saying, oh, these are all propagandists and SNP lovies yeah. and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Because they did not have that support from the artistic community. And they didn't really care. The no campaign didn't really care. They were hammering the economic argument. And they thought the cultural argument was a distraction because yeah. they knew they would lose the cultural argument. Yeah. Um, and, and they did lose the cultural argument, Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, National Collective, I think, had its time. I think if there is going to be another one, it should arise organically. I don't think it should, you know, appointing a leader, I think, is probably a mistake um, because leaders, by their very nature, imply a hierarchy mm -hmm. and a power structure that I think art tries to, uh, in some way, react against. Uh, there were no leaders in the cultural campaign for independence, certainly nobody who was formally appointed or yeah, you know, there might have been voices that were more prominent than others, but that's that. There was no, um, there was no uh, figurehead as such. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I think every artist would would have the right to just speak out as they see fit without having to be part of a formal group. I don't know if it would be necessary. Uh, and actually, to be quite honest, I'm not even sure if anybody would pay attention the next time because I think the next campaign is going to be so dirty and so fierce and so hard fought. Uh, that the the room for poetry would be small, uh, and that's that's it's not a very optimistic view. But I think that's how it's that's going to be the tone of the next one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're the seer. I'm not, but I, I would hope that that might not be the case. But I could see how it might be, because when I mean, you've got a whole bunch of arguments on the yes side, which have been carefully nurtured over the last number of years since 2014. On the no side, you've only got one argument, which is really no. That's it. No, I don't. Yeah. Can't explain to you why that's no. But no. Having said that, we've had because uh, we reach out in this program to people outside the constitutional silos, and we've had folks from uh, the area uh, who are completely opposed to independence. And I think one of the comments they made was that the yes movement, SNP, etc., frightened them because they, they feel it's all about change and they're uncertain about change, et cetera. And uh, yeah. I, I suppose that's the choice that people have when things are settled. The, the, you, you, if you posit major change, there'll be a bunch of folks who say, I, I'm not fussed about the change, I just don't like change, full stop. Sure. And then that's opposed to the folks who are always in favour of change because yeah. they see it as a positive thing. So, uh, and that's gone because we're now confronted with change on every quarter. Whether it be pandemics, whether it be yeah, there's no there's no stability, there's no safe ground to stand on anywhere. Yeah, not anywhere, uh, and the question is how you 
sort of work around that. Now, going back to the American model just for a second, the effect of the Americans declared UDI. I just want to test this argument a little bit further, if I may. They, they declared UDI, and they explained the reasons why. But they succeeded largely because of French support. <laughs> they did. I mean, that's the reality of it. Right. If it hadn't been French arms and materiel, they would have lost the war of independence, and they would have lost it significantly. Okay. Let's, let's assume, taking the model forward about UDI, where would the support come from outside Scotland, okay. do you think? Right. Well, let's look at this. How many friends does the UK currently have globally? None. You've got a potentially friendly Trump administration there because Trump has got a personal animus against the SNP because of all that stuff that happened with his golf course. There's the sort of uh, ideological comradeship between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. They're both right-wing populists that have animated the uh, xenophobic vote among their population in order to, to shore up their power base. So I think if Trump wins the election, things will be harder for us. However, I think if Biden wins the election, and I've got all sorts of issues with Biden, but I think we would all rather have him in place than Trump, that represents a real opportunity for us because that means the United States is not an ally to the Tory government for numerous reasons. One, Boris Johnson made some very, very ill-advised comments about Obama's heritage, which I'm fairly certain the Democrats have not forgotten. Yeah. Secondly, the Northern Ireland issue, Northern Ireland issue, uh, the uh, a Democrat government in America were one of the signatories of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. And it's one thing Britain trashing that agreement with the Irish, but it's another thing Britain trashing that agreement with the Americans. Because the Americans go, oh, no, hang on a minute here. We oversaw that whole agreement that you are now just chucking in the bin. Yeah. Who do you think you are? And that will make, first of all, trade with the United Kingdom very difficult, but will also mean that they're not going to look kindly necessarily on uh, any of the internal arrangements that, that, that Britain has with uh, Scotland and, and Ireland. Um, they would, we might find that, that the Americans are quite sympathetic to what we're trying to do. Yeah. On the other hand, that could be complicated by whatever agreements are reached about Trident. But Europe, I feel certain, if we canvass them enough, will be on our side. I would imagine most of the former colonies of the UK will be on our side. It's difficult to know what Australia could think about all this, but you know, it's no certain how important Australia is. And, and, and the, the, the real main players here are America, I suppose Russia, China. Um, I, I feel like we would have more support than the UK government has for the first time in history. Well, sorry, for the first time since the formation of the Union, yeah. Scotland would have more international support and clout and leverage than a British government. That is a very fortuitous position that we could be in. But I think a lot will depend on, on the result of the American election. I don't think, I don't think Trump will ever become... Uh, an ally of an independent Scotland. I wouldn't have thought so. But everything you've described just now, Alan, is what might be regarded as soft power. Yeah. It would be within the 
uh, aegis of the uh, UK government to exercise hard power, to militarize it, if you like. That would be within their remit, one imagines. So, and presumably, a declaration of UDI may encourage that thought. Do you know what? Do you know what, right? Let them. As long as we refrain from violence of any kind, as long as the independence movement never resorts to violence, because I think once you do that, that's what they're looking for. I mean, that's really what the, the, the Spanish were trying to go to the Catalans, aren't they? And always have uh, a violent reaction so that they can feel justified in their oppression, so they can brand you a terrorist. Yeah. And so they, they feel justified in violent repression. As long as the independence movement never ever retorts to violence, we will eventually win the argument. Because in the eyes of the world, a violent repression of a peaceful movement eventually is untenable. Eventually. You play the long game. You just you, you don't play their, their game. And you, you, know, you only have to look at what happened on, on the island of Ireland to realise that a violent reaction leads to decades and decades of bloodshed and recrimination and uh, you know all, all sorts of uh, obstacles in the way of peace. So, you know, even if they send the tanks in, stand back, let them. You know what I mean? Welcome the soldiers. Be kind. And, and, and ultimately they'll see that this is, a, this is a lost cause. And, you know, like, we, we now have every aspect of the momentum that we could possibly need on our side. And you only, you only talk to violence if you feel that you have to in order to force the opposition to bend to your will. Okay. That's, the, that's the only reason violent political action exists. If you feel that you have the, the arguments, the moral arguments, and the support of the population, all you need to do is stand back and wait for the enemy to realise their mistakes. Arrogance, the arrogance of the UK government, the, the British arrogance will always be our best friend because they are so arrogant and so deluded and so uh, certain of themselves that they will continue to make the same strategic mistakes that they have made in the last 10 years. See, see if they, after having won the referendum, right, they had a moment to end us when they could have said, Scotland, you've shown faith in Britain. Here's all these new powers that we promised you. You, you know, we're going to keep you consulted on everything we do. You know, you're a valued member of the union. Don't listen to the nationalists. But they were never going to do that because that's not how Britain works. Britain's about pure naked power. So as soon as they got the no vote in, bam, they shut the trap. And everybody can see them doing it. So, you know what, just, just let's sit back and keep watching them fuck it up. That's what I'm enjoying at the moment. That's why support for yes is at 58%. Because the opposition are idiots. Yeah. Uh, I think there are some unionists that might well agree with you, frankly. Here's a question that's come from Charles Smith. We've had loads of questions, by the way, but several of them bear upon uh, answers you've already uh, given us. But Charles Smith on YouTube is saying, how could the cultural sector help combat foreknown uh, mainstream media ignorance and bias? Well, <clears throat> the cultural sector has always done that just by creating culture. The whole point of art, poetry, music, drama, theatre, whatever, is to help people think in different ways and feel things that they wouldn't feel through conventional means because we're all trained by the media to think in certain ways. So all you need to do is create art and 
make sure people get to experience it. Mm. That's what that's what we can do. That's what we did in 2014. Yeah. It's a bit tougher now though because of the pandemic restrictions. That's true. What, do you have any thoughts on how that might be done? Well, the only means now available is the, is the internet, you know, because we can't go on a stage. You know, you can you can rock up in people's villages, but at the end of the day, people are still going to be two metres apart and large crowds are discouraged. So um, the the internet is is what we've got left. I mean, this is why I've been doing the, the Zoom clubs, really, is to try and generate connections with people that I can't see physically. And to try and put positivity out there into the world and remind each other that, you know, if you're experiencing the same song and the same music that everybody's enjoying, we can still see each other, that that is a positive human connection. You know, I would rather that was happening in real life, but it's not. The internet is still, I mean, here, here's you and I, John, having this conversation. Whereas if this had happened in 2014, I would probably have to go to where you are. I'd have to travel there to go there and leave my family. Now, at the moment, all I've just done is shut the door. When I open the door again, my kids are sleeping in the, the bedroom. I'm going to go downstairs and probably have to clean the kitchen. Whereas if we were to do this in 2014, I travelled all over Scotland to do things like this in 2014. So there are certain advantages in, in the new online world that we've discovered because we can do things quickly and easily. Yeah. But there are obvious disadvantages as well. You kind of get groups of people together in the same way and feel. I mean, there's, there's something about those rallies that happened yeah. uh, in 2012. And I think 2012 was maybe the first one in Princess Street Gardens and then in Carlton Hill in 2013. And those marches that have been uh, happening in the last few years where you feel the immense physical power and you look around and you go, look at all of these people that feel the same way that I do. You know, the advantage of that for morale can't be underestimated. See the people that have been organising these marches, they have kept, and for yourself and people like Kevin Gibney behind the scenes who's, who's making this happen at Independence Live, they have kept the Yes Movement alive after the result in 2014. They have kept it going. So I take my hat off to you. Sorry, John, I'm keying on that. that. That's that's why we have guests. Uh, Nobody wants to hear Jump from me. Jump in. They want, they want to hear from the guest. And, and well, I'm going to I'm going to sit back now. <laughs> no, there won't be time to sit back because we've got we've got loads of stuff coming in. Uh, Kenny no, Lowe, no, I bet you that was you getting a text from Kevin saying, "Go to the questions." No, well, yeah, <laughs> he, he always does that though, uh, uh, because we have to strike a balance here. Of course, the time we've got, we've uh, only got ten minutes, and uh, and, and and actually hearing from the guest. Okay. Uh, but we've got, I mean, Kenny Lowe has uh, written in to say it's a great show, positive tone. People are asking about the list. Uh, they're asking how you feel about uh, a list party standing for the Scottish elections. Um, I've not really made up my mind on that, to be quite honest. When it comes to the whole of the elections, I'll look at these parties, I'll look at what their policies are, I'll look at what the arguments they're putting forward are. Um, and I'll try and decide for myself as to whether or not I'm going to give them a second vote. This part of me thinks that we need to open up the Yes movement to other electoral parties because the SNP are so dominant that it's possible a certain complacency could creep in. But on the other hand, I do worry that if the SNP vote goes down any, that the opposition will take that as an excuse to say, see, 
as they did when we had the election, uh, when the SNP lost seats in Westminster, when yeah. was it 20, yeah. 2017, yeah. Yeah. 2018? I can't remember exactly what happened. There's been so many votes, even although the SNP comfortably won the vote in Scotland because of lost seats. They said, see, support for independence has gone down. It was a facile argument, but nonetheless, it had plausibility about it. Well, um, it had, so it had, I, I haven't it made up my mind yet. I, I, it was an argument that had some force because, uh, I mean, they picked the unions picked up two major scalp, Alex Salmond and and, uh, and the leader of the party, Robertson, in Westminster. These are significant achievements in anyone's book. And I think that's what gave real impetus to that. I mean, it was it was a, a sophistry, but it oh. gave it some it gave, gave it some connection to reality when they could say, look. These two people lost their seats, and they were Angus Robertson and, and Alex Salmond, and they're big players. So it must have helped the SNP. There was a certain logic to that. Yeah. But uh, it, looking ahead, say, say, for example, we're having this conversation in a year's time. Tell us what you think the status of how Scotland stands in a year's time. Jesus. I mean, there are so many factors. It's just impossible, to be quite honest with you, it's just impossible to say because one, you've got the presidential elections in November. Two, you've got the pandemic. Three, you've got the impact of an ideal Brexit. Yep. If any one of these things was in play, you might be able to make a prediction, but all yep. of them. And, you know, and you've got the holiday election and you've got, without wanting to go into it, you've got the Alex Salmond fallout mm. and the impact that that might have in the Scottish government and in the SNP and the on the wider yes movement. There are so many variables and so many different factors pushing and pulling uh, that I think uh, prediction is impossible. But the one thing I will say is that I don't think support for independence is going to get down. Yeah. I feel quite confident at that moment that we're never going to go back below 50%. And while we've got that, we've actually got a victory. Deferred, delayed at some point uh, in the future. We don't know when, but if the majority of people in Scotland want independence, it will happen. It will happen. What form of independence do you think will take shape? Uh, how do you mean? Like, oh. the, 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 the <laughs> independence movements have got a, a checkered history, frankly, once they attain their mm -hmm. primary mm -hmm. goal. A, quite a number of uh, states have failed. Uh, not just African. I know that's the commonest view. Well, well, you, you people are a bit dismissive and say, well, that's they started off from a poor base. But the reality is that it's not a God-given right that a state will succeed once it becomes sovereign. Uh, so the question is, what sort of okay. state do you think will be the case on independence? Let me let me give a, a little bit of extra background. Okay, Scotland is. I was going to say almost unique, as if you can be almost pregnant, but Scotland is unique in the sense there's no right-wing independence party. I mean, even nope. if you look at Catalonia, it has the right wing is represented in the independence movement. There is mm -hmm. no right-wing representation in the Scottish independence movement. That's very different to what occurs elsewhere. So you then ask yourself, what sort of state will emerge, assuming that independence is secured? Well... Uh, I think, given what you've just said, that Scotland would be pretty much always 
further to the left than England, which I think is what most of us are looking for. Now, I would love a left-wing England. I think there's a left-wing England waiting to be rediscovered. I think there's a radical English history that has always existed that has been defeated, essentially, that stretches way back from the, the Chartists and the Levellers right up to the minor strike. But unfortunately, that has been so pushed to the margins and even, you know, with Corbyn's defeat, it's been pushed even further to the margins. But nonetheless, it's there waiting to be rediscovered. I think a right a left-wing Scotland, a left-wing Scottish independent state could reanimate that left-wing England and, and, and give it force because they would have the dynamic right there on their doorstep of... Uh, I don't want to use the word socialist, even though I'm in favour of a socialist Scotland. Yeah. Um, I would say a Scotland that has more left-wing leanings. Yeah. Uh, because I know not everybody who is even sympathetic to the left in Scotland identifies as being a socialist. Yeah. But I think we would have at least a left of centre or at worst a centrist government in Scotland that would invest in public services, that would protect the NHS, that would invest in a massive house rebuilding programme because to get council houses out there, but one of the things that's gone majorly wrong with Britain over the last 30 years is the selling off the council houses has been, has been the great disaster for most people in the UK because there's, there's no cheap and affordable housing for people anymore. So to invest in the public sector to that degree I think would be the future of an independent Scotland. What I would really worry about, quite frankly, um, is the, the Growth Commission, because that seems to be a love letter to the banking classes that have failed us so disastrously. Um, I, I, really didn't, I really didn't want that to be the blueprint for an independent Scotland, and I didn't think it would be viable for very long should it be implemented. You're supportive of uh, modern monetary theory. Um, do you know what? Look at Commonweal. See the work that Commonweal have been doing. Commonweal have been doing incredible work for the last five years in the margins, continually petitioning the Scottish government to look at this work that they've been doing that the Scottish government should have been doing and haven't been doing because they, they, you know they're, they're allowing the banking class to drop the blueprint for independent Scotland. I mean, they've been learning nothing for 2008. So go to Commonweal and look at their programme for independent Scotland. That's what it should look like. To give you a very quick answer, John, in the last few minutes of the show, that's what it should look like. Okay. Well, there you are, folks. As uh, Alan has kindly reminded us, we're coming near the end. I don't want to. I don't want to. I know. <laughs> but we've just got there. Otherwise, Kevin is going to go crazy and say, come on, guys, you're overstepping the mark. But uh, uh, And I don't want to be... No, no. <laughs> Well, actually, my partner wants a laptop back, so probably exactly. can't. Yeah. There'll, be whole, there'll be a whole bunch of people in the audience who are saying, I would go all night. They want to go and watch the, the football because Scotland has its full, its full quota of massacres, but uh, who knows? <laughs> there might be a win this tonight. But, it, but it's all going to be about the future, I suspect, and, and how well the different parties can paint that future in a way that people can relate to and feel supportive of. The reason I, I slightly queried your concept of a centre government, it's very unlikely that's going to be the case unless there is a, a split soon in the Conservative uh, Party, uh, where we get a Conservative stroke independence party. Uh, because otherwise, the parties that make up the first Scottish government will almost certainly be all left wing 
<laughs> there won't be any right-wing opposition of any kind that's, that's certainly on the horizon just now, unless that split takes place fairly soon. So it would be a somewhat unbalanced uh, government, I suspect, in the first instance, whether it included lots of SNP members or not, who knows what form the first independence, uh, uh, post-independence government might take. Are there any last thoughts? We've got about 30 seconds, Alan, before we go. I suppose my last thoughts would be try and show as much support and kindness as you can to other people in the independence movement rather than try to take them down. Think about the fact that we now have the majority of the people in Scotland on our side and what a huge, huge psychological boost that is. And keep the heat. Keep the heat. Yeah. There you are, folks. That's the best advice I can think of uh, tonight. Keep the heat, uh, and you've heard it here tonight. Uh, thank you again, Alan. We're very, very grateful to you. Well, a big thanks to Alan, and a big thanks to all of you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the TNT show. And very importantly, please support NB Live. Kevin and the rest of the team work studiously, manfully, the whole time to bring programmes like this to you. Show them your support, please, whenever you can. Good night, all.